Hello, everybody. My name is Markiplier. Welcome. That's not right. What? That's, that's not the way this starts. Wait, this isn't Markiplier's show. Uh, this. I gotta talk. I gotta talk to my agent. This is the Drunken UX Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Feenan. Hold on, I'm on phone with my agent. <laughs> you, well, you, is, you do hear, that, and your other other host, Mark. Renegotiate I mean, your salary while you're at it. <laughs> I wouldn't pay pay me double, Michael. Double. You know what? You've you've been worth it to me. Uh, Thank you. I value you, and I value you I double. I should have asked for more than. You double. know what? No, I think it's only fair that you get paid the exact same amount that I do. I think that that is that's the, that's equality. Okay, uh, folks, <laughs> this is episode number sixty six. This week, I threw a curveball at Aaron about two hours ago. We had a whole other topic planned and ready to go, and I ran into some news and a couple articles, and I went. I want to talk about those instead. And so <laughs> I threw together a whole new thing for us. So this week we're going to be talking about how to speed up your Google fonts. Uh, we're going to be looking at UX page rank and Twitter accessibility issues that are out in the wild. So this is a little three for potpourri episode. Um, we haven't done one in a while and I kind yeah. of enjoy them. And, uh, but this episode of the Drunken UX podcast is brought to you by our friends over at New Cloud. You can check them out at newcloud.com. New slash drunken UX. That's in ucloud.com slash drunken UX. And check them out if you need any kind of map illustrations or interactive mapping services for campuses or hotels or hospitals or retirement homes, zoos. Uh, I think as long as it needs a map, you're going to be pretty well off going that route. So check them out. Let them know the Drunken UX podcast sent you. With that, uh, Aaron, where can they find us? You can find us over at Twitter and Facebook.com slash DrunkenUX and also Instagram.com slash DrunkenUXpodcast and at DrunkenUX.com slash Discord. Uh, first and foremost, my friend, what are you drinking? I've got a nice glass here of some Balvany Caribbean cask. It's the same bottle from before several episodes ago. I haven't drank it in a while. I, I still I think love it. Since the pandemic started. I am drinking, um, I went a little different. I, I I pulled a U this week, actually. Okay. I said, I have things. I'm going to mix some of these things. <laughs> um, and so I'm doing Sprite, uh, Bacardi Superior, and Propel okay. Black Cherry. Oh, interesting. And it's it, it kind of tastes right. a little bit like a, like a cherry snow cone, almost. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. But it, I bet yeah, that's pretty good. It's good. It's quite refreshing. My Sprite is a little bit flat, unfortunately, but... <laughs> the, of course propel is just water it's cherry water so right that would kind of mix it out anyway but it does it works very well the flavor is quite nice so <laughs> folks starting things off this evening uh we're gonna talk about making google fonts faster uh this comes by way of an article at com. this is harry roberts site um he Man, this article was incredible. So first and foremost, uh, Harry, uh, kudos on the work you did for this. Obviously, as always, links are in the show notes. So if you want to go find this article and check it out for yourself, mm -hmm. um, it will be waiting for you there. Uh, the article basically got into, he was talking about how 
Google Fonts now allows some different loading options to be passed in the URLs when you are calling fonts uh, from their CDN. And he was trying to figure out how to make his sites as fast as humanly possible. And so he took all of these different methods of making you know font loading faster and tested them all across his site in different combinations to figure out mm-hmm. what the fastest way was. A, just if you are interested in page speed and figuring out how to to make stuff faster, absolutely go read the article because it really, it dives into a lot of detail, but without it being like, it's not technical. Like it's not something that you have to be wildly uh, adept at any particular technology. Yeah. I, I remember, still remember when, when, when did Google fonts come out? Was that? Been out a while now. Like five years? Oh, no, at least. It than, yeah, it's been, it's gotta seven. be longer than that. I think I was at Cornell when it came out. It's really cool. These, these font, CDNs like Google Fonts is one, Typekit is another that I think a lot of mm-hmm. people will be familiar with. Um, you know, w- web fonts have always kind of been a balancing act, right? We got this yeah. superpower basically, um, but God, a, well, 15 years ago, it, it's actually been around a lot longer than people think because um, it goes back to like IE10 or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, weirdly, like old IE supported web fonts and all of this. By using web fonts, you inherently add weight to the page. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we we started looking at converting different, you know, designers would be like, oh, I love this font. Let's use it. So you convert it and, and upload it. But that's now 80 kilobytes extra. It's like another image on your on your site or what have you. And so there's always been this sort of marriage between getting nice type uh, typography design and good readability with the content, but also maintaining your page speed. Yeah. And that's, so that's where Harry's article comes in because he was interested in all of those things. I like, I, the first time I saw variable fonts yeah, was at, at a previous job recently. And I just thought it was an HTML5 property that I hadn't known about previously. And I was like, oh, this is neat. And I didn't realize it was a specific kind of font. I thought it was just a thing, like a cool magical thing you could do yeah, now. Yeah, just yeah, something the browser <laughs> natively right. understood. Fun fact, yeah. with Google Fonts in particular, I don't know about Typekit, um, because while I, of course, have Photoshop and all that, I just never use Typekit. Mm-hmm. But with Google Fonts, you can now filter by variable fonts. So if you only want to use a variable font, you can filter down to just those uh, to hmm. to use them. And we should probably That's should cool. explain that, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. As far as like what a variable font is. Yeah, it is from my understanding of it, it's a font with additional coding in it that you can then manipulate with variable parameters when you right. load it. Right. Yeah. So it's it's all about like so. For instance, now when you want to use like a custom web font. The way you go about, if you need italic and bold and different weights, mm-hmm. you end up loading a font for each one of those weights. And so you may, for any given typeset, you may have to actually load like five font files, for instance. Yeah. That gets weighty. Because if every one of those font files is, you know, 30 to 80 kilobytes, you're loading four or five of them, well, now you're getting upwards of, you know, 300, 400 megs, half a meg in some cases. Yeah. 
what variable fonts have aimed to do is provide you a base font that you can pass properties in CSS to control all that. So common ones are weight, mm-hmm. whether, you know, the amount of italiza- italization, italicization, italicization, yeah. I don't know which one of those words is right. Italicization. <laughs> that's, that's a fun one. Um, you can get into things like uh, what's what's the word is it, a, a ligature? Is that the right uh, the right word I'm trying to use there? The the little like hangy downers and stuff on like G's and P's um, mm-hmm. or whatever those are called. How long the serifs are if you're using a serif font? Like you can make all of these things change based on parameters. Yeah. Now it's called des- descenders. Descenders. Little, yeah. Yeah. Hangy. Hangy. Is thing. is a ligature a thing even? Y- yes. Um, oh, a, a ligature is a special character that combines two or sometimes three characters into a yes, single character. Yeah. So I was the totally, a- I was a- like, e. I, I was right in that it is, in fact, a font word. Right. <laughs> but it was, no. that was not what I was thinking of. Descenders, you are right. Descenders is, is what I was meaning to say. Um, you can tell I am not a, a typography designer. <laughs> I It's been a very long time, but if I recall correctly, um, on Windows 3.1, if you held alt and typed 0198 on the numeric keypad, the little 10 key thing, it would show the character that was coded as AE lig, uh, which is the HTML entity for AE lig. Right. Um, and so, that, yeah, the AE ligature character. So the, so what the thing about the variable fonts becomes is the variable font has to be bigger just mm-hmm. by virtue of needing to support this kind of ver- you know variableization of of different properties. So a variable font may come in at 300 kilobytes, even upwards of 500 kilobytes in some cases. So it's a trade-off. You wouldn't want to load 5 of those for different things. But if you're having to load 4 or 5 different variations of the same font, you may in fact save space by using the variable font and just adjusting its settings for different use cases. So it, you just kind of have to, you know, fudge it and, you know, not estimate, but, you know, test it and see is one lighter than the other, you know, depending mm-hmm. on your use case. But you just have to, you know, you, there, there's no way to know without uh, doing that. CDNs help. Obviously, if you're using Google Fonts or Typekit, that can speed things up. There is at least a chance that people have stuff cached from Google or from Typekit at that point. Um, if they yeah. use the internet a lot, you know, there may be a good chance in some cases. Um, so that can speed up that page loading. And it's it's tough because with designers in particular, designers want to make a page pretty. They want to make it look nice. But yeah. they aren't necessarily concerned or have to be concerned with the debt that they incur by using a different font for the header, for the body text, for, you know, accent text and all of this stuff. So that's where, like, as a front-end developer, you start looking at those designs and it's like, oh, crap. And I've ran into that with designs where it's like we've started looking at our payload and it's like, man, over half of our site weight is just web fonts that are getting downloaded. And that's a tough cookie at that point. So speed becomes very important to us 
one of the properties that Harry hits on is one that I, I don't think a lot of people are even aware of, which is a, a CSS property called font display. Is that the, uh, let, me, let me guess, I'm, without looking at the show notes, I'm going to guess what I think that is. Is that like the disposition of what type of, like if you have a font and you can say font display italics and it will show the italic version? Is that right? Uh, Aaron no, I'm did way not off. do the homework. Oh, no, I, 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 I like the, I the like, homework I, like I gave him two way. hours to do. <laughs> so I do better this way. You're okay, thinking so font of text style. Is... Text style yes, is what you're yes. thinking of. So okay. font display is a property that lets you tell the browser what to do with text that is using a web font. Oh. At, like literally as it is loading. So it's a means by which uh, you can control what happens as that file is being downloaded. And so there, there are a few different options for it. The, the average window for this feature is about three seconds. And anything mm -hmm. longer than three seconds starts to time out the different features. The, the values you can have for it are block or swap. Um, there are also, uh, there's also fallback and optional, but those are just uh, a, sort of a mashup of block and swap and how they behave. But what it amounts to is if you're using a lot of web fonts, you can control how the page behaves. So if you're blocking, you're basically saying, don't show the text until my font is downloaded. It prevents the flash of unstyled text by hiding it until it's ready. I am really disappointed that no one has released a talk or article called get the folk out of here. <laughs> I'm sure it's happened. Oh no, I just Googled for it. It didn't show up anywhere. <laughs> so with swap, it's the opposite of that. So it en enables the flash of unstyled text. So huh. when it swaps, it's basically saying, I'm going to show you the text and I'm going to style it with the web font. Once the web font's ready. Fallback yeah. and optional basically create timeouts, and that's where that three seconds I mentioned comes in. Mm -hmm. So if, there, if fallback is enabled, if it doesn't load within that time span, it'll do one thing. If optional um, is there, if it times out, it just shows you the system font. Um, so those just give you some different behaviors, but it does mean you lose a little control in the event that your web font loads slowly. So I think like maybe an easy, if you're not sure what to do, pick like a a plain or commonly used google font because or at least one that shows up on a very popular site because then it's more likely that your visitors have have it cached already yeah and at the end of the the whole thing he's got some screenshots that are very cool where not only i mean he hasn't just broken down the math he actually recorded the paint times for these pages oh, cool. and and captured like the different render states at different time points using mm -hmm. each of these different methods and so this uh, there there is a certain amount of what do you want so like mm -hmm. for instance if you wanted to do font display block you're making a conscious decision to say it is more important to me that they see the right thing rendered immediately rather than seeing it wrong and then having it become right so there, you know, there are things like that to consider, and those are just decisions to make from a design standpoint, from a UX standpoint, but he gives a really thorough kind of look at all of these and then gets into what you can do on the CSS side. So doing things like, you know, preload, for instance, um, mm -hmm. to sort of prime the cache, so to speak.
Right. You can do you can do preload, of course, async, you know, loading things asynchronously, pre-connect to get the DNS ready. So he factors in all of these things as well so that you are trying to get stuff to the user as quickly as possible. And he that comes up in all of the numbers. So there's just there is just a lot of information in it that's very cool and gets into latency and gets into some of the theory as to how CSS loads for that matter. You know, how CSS gets prioritized first as a blocking download, and then when you async it, it drops way down the priority tree. And so that changes the way your page renders as a consequence. Mm-hmm. So check it out. Um, it's over at his site, cssswizardry.com. Um, give him a shout out if you read it and found it helpful. Um, I thought it was cool as hell, so I think you will I really too. appreciate when people do like quantitative analyses of things like that. It's like you can't you can't argue with good data. Oh yeah. It's just, yeah. Good stuff. So next on the docket, we have another article that involves Google. Not intentionally. Uh, I just thought this was an interesting discussion to have. So Google is, well, let's rewind first. This comes from uh, Lily Smith over at Fast Company. And the Mm. article will be, guess where? In the show notes. Um, (laughs) She was reporting on the fact that Google is going to begin to favor websites in results that have good user experience. Not for like another six months, right? Well, uh, so according to the article, Google is saying it'll year. be next year. Okay. And they will offer six months of warning before it actually kicks in. Okay, so when, when, when I saw the heading for this topic, my, my first thought was like, this could either go like really well or horribly wrong, depending on what sorts of metrics they look at. And I was like, how can you possibly measure like UX, which is like a very subjective human qualitative and assessment of something with like, but assess it with a computer program. But I, I think that the metrics they came up with are, are actually not bad. Right. Yeah. I, I don't think that and it doesn't fully encompass UX, but there are some important low hanging fruit. Yeah. They, sure. they tried to find a way to qualify some of the meaningful stuff and the approach isn't, Awful, because I like you. My first, my first reaction was, "Oh, good, Google is going to try to force us to do, you know, try. They're going to try to force the web to do something again." Um, and that's a scary prospect sometimes. But as I read into this, it's like you know, performance is still performance, and the way they're going about this isn't terrible, uh, because it mm-hmm. it really is kind of focused on things that do genuinely impact user experience um, and the way people will interact with content and things like that. Yeah. There's an article and there'll be linked somewhere. I don't know where. Oh, it's in the show notes. That's right. It'll be in the show notes. If you read the Chromium blog. (laughs) When you say show notes, do you mean in the show notes? In in the show notes. The notes of this show. Not last show. And not the next one that's not up yet, but this one. Uh. If you read the Chromium blog, they've got uh, an article uh, called Introducing Web Vitals Essential Metrics. They're building on this thing they created called Web Vitals. This is the name they have given it. And Hmm. 
It includes <laughs> three primary categories of metrics. The largest contentful paint, first input delay, and cumulative layout shift. Okay, so like <laughs> none of these things are at all stuff that I would think of when I think about UX. It really? I mean, they're they're definitely important. So either they named it poorly, which is not an uncommon thing for Google to do, or they're going to add additional like UX, like maybe more traditional UX analyses over time. Yeah, so to go through them, they they've outlined them. I mean, they're they're pretty straightforward. So largest contentful paint. They mm -hmm. say it measures the perceived load time speed and marks the point in the page load timeline where the page's main content has likely loaded. And to build on the last topic, it would be, for instance, after your font loads. You know, if you're right. if you're doing you know the font display block. You're waiting until that web font becomes unblocked before you have meaningful content paint, basically. So there's a, actually right. a really good tie-in there between those two concepts. Um, Meaning, meaningful content paint would be a better name than largest. Uh, largest may describe how they're approaching it, but but they're basically just saying how quick is it take or how long is it taking before the user can see your stuff. Right, which is it right. that that's a UX thing, right? If we know that page load speeds matter, and we and we know that page speed in general has been a factor in Google's uh, search rankings for years at this point, yeah, this is just sort of an abstraction of that idea. Well, the whole page may still be doing a lot of stuff, but the user right. can start to do things with it now. Yeah, I, I think a good uh, a good metric there is if your ads load before your content, maybe reassess your priorities. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, they, they suggest 2.5 seconds and less is considered good, and 2.5 to 4 seconds is considered needs improvement, and anything above 4 seconds is poor. Yeah, and I'm ashamed of how many pages I've built that take longer than 4 seconds. Yeah, yeah. It It really does take a concerted effort, I think, to get a page to load that quickly these days. Well, so like, what are some things? Like, I can think of a couple things, but what are some things you can think of to that you can do that are like that aren't going to completely solve it, but are like kind of simple hacks to uh, speed get, up your page load? Yeah, get yourself there quicker. So, for yeah. content especially, you want to get rid of anything that is render blocking. So, your CSS mm -hmm. and your JavaScript. This argument about why JavaScript should get put in the footer is a good one because yeah. it means it's rendered through the dom last or towards yeah. the last after all the actual rest of the markup is hit i remember um when when table-based layouts were still a thing if you had a any content in a table doesn't display until all the content in the table is ready to be painted yeah so if you if you're that was one of the big reasons to push towards um div-based layouts um async and defer on css and mm -hmm. javascript as well that helps load things in tandem as opposed to mm -hmm. having it wait on everything. Yeah. Combining requests. This is one thing that you know we've gotten real big about at work, which is we don't want four different style sheets to load on a page. You know, yeah. we have a build process that now takes care of all of that. If we've got external resources, we 
include that into our build process. So you request one style sheet for our site. Um, and so you're, you're eliminating the number of think of it like driving through town, right? And every yeah. time you come to an intersection, you got to hit that stop sign or stop light and wait right. for that to go. If you've got 12 and you want to know what's bad about this WordPress. Mm-hmm. When you look at what plugins do, if you're using a lot of front end plugins and they're all in queuing CSS up and you look in your yeah. header and you've got eight, nine, 10, a dozen CSS files sometimes. Every one of those, if they aren't loading asynchronously, is stopping your website in its tracks to download that file. Making sure that you're doing, uh, you're minifying your assets like your JavaScript and style sheets, yeah. and also that you're compiling your style sheets. Actually, using Webpack is a great, um, a great <laughs> way to load up your. <laughs> do you not like Webpack, or do you do? I. Uh, I appreciate what Webpack wants to do. I, I've been learning a lot more about it recently because my, my new job uses it's, it. But. Webpack is, and for just folks who don't know, it's a, it's a build tool that assembles mm-hmm. your CSS and JavaScript and things like that and helps combine them, minify them. It'll also do transpiling. Um, it'll do yeah. like prefixing of CSS. So if you're using CSS that isn't well-supported, It'll use vendor prefixes on all of it without you having mm-hmm. to write them all. The reason I'm kind of like, eh. Webpack configuration can be a real oh, monster. Yeah. And oh, no, that's that's for real. I've yeah. been using Rollup and Parcel a lot more. Okay. And they are so much easier, especially if you just need a basic build tool to do those kinds of yeah. things. Like you don't have a lot of nuanced things you want to have happen or do. And this is just a sidebar, but... If you're wanting a build tool that is a little lower barrier to entry, uh, Rollup and Parcel, mm-hmm. I think, are better starting points than Webpack. Sure. Personal sure. opinion. I we, we use Webpack just because we have a lot of uh, front end and well, we have a lot of Rails and a lot of React. And Webpack is one that's sort of like it, it's that, um, you know, that meme of the of the two like muscly arms like shaking hands. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's uh that's the thing that they've agreed on. Even if you're not doing something like like webpack or even parcel, like just using SAS to compile your CSS and then mini- running it through a minifier, uh, which you can do manually. You don't have to do anything fancy. There there's like uh plenty of tools for minifying CSS and JavaScript also. One of the other uh, web vitals is first input delay which is basically they're measuring how quickly the user can interact with the page. Mm, okay. Okay. Like if you think about like, um, if you go to Instagram.com slash drunken UX podcast, and you look at one of our fabulous memes we have up there, when the page loads from the moment you type in Instagram.com slash drunken UX podcast, how long before you can click on one of the images to view it or like it? Right. Like, how long before you can have a meaningful interaction? It reminds me very vaguely, and to kind of understand how does the timing to first interaction relate to UX, um, to go to the laws of UX, Fitz Law. The time to yeah. acquire a target is a function of the distance and size of the target. Now, mm-hmm. obviously not the exact same thing, but time is a function of user experience in those cases. Sure. How quickly I can do the thing that I am set to do, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've known this for decades at this point that the amount of time it takes to do things on web pages affects people's 
you know, conversion rates or interaction rates with pages. So I think Don Norman calls that the with the Gulf of Execution. It's but the time between when you want to do something and when you're able to do it versus the Gulf of Evaluation, which is when between when you do something and when you can see that it has had the effect. Oh, first input delay, good is zero to 100 milliseconds. Needs improvement is 100 to 300 milliseconds and poor is 300 and above. So comparing that to largest contentful paint. It's weird that that is much shorter, right? Like that seems... Yeah. So I I don't fully know that... Because here's the thing, right? That may be a function of like how quickly after you know, page load, for instance, or something like that. Okay, it, yeah. The signpost matters, and they don't say, like, what that is relative to. That's, I think... Oh, no. FID is, um, it, it's the gulf of execution. It's, or right, gulf of evaluation. FID measures the time. This is from uh, web.dev slash FID. Right. FID measures the time from which a user first interacts with a page, i.e. when they click a link, tap on a button, and custom JavaScript power control to the time when the browser is actually able to respond to that interaction. Oh, okay. That makes perfect sense then. So that means like um, the time between when the page is ostensibly loaded, so the, the largest contentful paint has finished, and you can start making your intent on the page, like clicking on stuff or whatever. Yeah. Um, how long will it take before the page can actually respond to that? So you can see, I also didn't do all my homework. For that. <laughs> I literally just looked it up. So this wasn't like I did it in advance or anything. <laughs> um, cumulative layout shift is my favorite uh, because it is mostly what it sounds like. It basically involves how much does stuff move around the page. And the classic example of this is banner ads. Mm-hmm. So you land on a page, you're looking at something, you go to click on it, and then an ad loads and everything moves out of the way and probably tricks you into clicking the ad. So they're factoring that into the UX of the page. So if your page content is moving around constantly, it it also is encouraging you to consider like element sizing and things because even Mm -hmm. if it's not an ad, there are frequent times where like stuff is dynamically loading, for instance. If you've got a panel where something dynamically loads in, Ideally, you should probably know how big that thing is or how much space right. it's going to take up um, so that it doesn't shift everything around for the same thing. Because it still has the same disassociative effect to the user when things are right. moving around unexpectedly. That's annoying. Yeah. I, I hate fa- Facebook always does that to me. It'll like I'll load the page up and I'm just trying to get the messenger and I click on the messenger thing. And then instead, notifications jumped under it. And I'm like, I didn't want to click on notifications. It, it's, a, it's a good metric. Like this, to go back to yeah. what you originally said, like how would, how would you measure UX in a way that can be valuable for indexing pages? And I think these mm-hmm. three things actually kind of good. I, like, I'm disappointed that it, they don't have things like I, uh, using like the Axe tool, for example, to like do a general assessment of, of like 508 compliance uh, or like any, any of those tools that you programmatically assess yeah. a page. I mean, that's an interesting point. And I think the, the thing I would say is wait, I mean, yeah, Google's been evolving their method of indexing pages constantly. We, you know, it used to just be content is king and that was the way we mm-hmm. said it. 
And for what it's worth, they still say that. They still say content is the most important thing. Where stuff like this factors in is when you have a thousand pages with the same basic content. The things yeah. that are going to move the needle for different pages are going to be these little things at that point. Right. But you started with content is king. Then they started saying, you know, we're going to start, you know, uh, bumping up pages that are uh, responsive. They started measuring for responsive layout. Then they started measuring for mobile first speed. They started factoring in page speed. They've they've constantly refined and added in like meta index type values yeah. to improve stuff. Now we're getting into this. I don't think it's unreasonable to think that accessibility could easily factor into that rank. Measuring how many images on a page have alt text and knowing whether or not those images are decorative, for instance. They've got the AI algorithms to, I think, identify that kind of stuff now. Mm -hmm. You know, checking contrast on elements. We know that's programmatically possible at this point. Like, I think that's absolutely possible. And for what it's worth, you know, Google is also very, uh, you know, they keep that hand close to the chest. So... While these three items we've listed are called out specifically in Web Vitals, there are very likely others that we don't know about because they're specifically trying to keep people from gaming gaming that measurement. Yeah. A couple things worth reading here from the article. Um, the new ranking factor will combine quantifiable metrics related to speed, responsiveness, and visual stability with other criteria like mobile friendliness, safe browsing, HTTPS, and no intrusive pop-up windows in order to provide a more well-rounded picture of the web page's UX. They go on to say that pages should load within two and a half seconds, which, Aaron, you alluded to already, and users should be able to interact with the page within 100 milliseconds. That's FID. Another measurement looks at how often visible page content unexpectedly shifts around. That's the cumulative layout shift. Right. They closed out by saying this update will also no longer require that publishers use accelerated mobile pages to be eligible for top stories. And that is an interesting hidden little nugget in that article. I, I wonder if this is one of those things where they're like, okay, look, you don't have to use AMP, but just saying, if you want to hit good metrics on all these other things, AMP is one way you could do it. I, I read it as them taking the foot off of the gas for AMP a little yeah. bit. I think they've realized that making it a little more competitive. I, I think they realized that while the big publishers have all adopted mm -hmm. AMP consistently, nobody else is. Right. I don't think anybody else cares. And I think at that point, they don't need AMP implementations to create those top story carousels at that point. If you're interested in this, there is a Chrome extension. It'll be linked in the show notes. It's linked in their article as well. Um, and you'll also be seeing Web Vitals starting to get implemented in other tools like Lighthouse and, and some of those other uh, site tools that are in the browser. So you will actually see, like, Web Vitals isn't going to be some weird abstract thing that is just out there. Um, it is going to, just like page rank and, and page speed and stuff like that, it's going to be a component of their tool suite um, so that you should be able to go in. And, Aaron, you mentioned the site web.dev. That's sort of their... Yeah clearing house for all of this information about you know best mm. practices that they are trying to encourage and and push for people
So have you heard the controversy, Aaron? You should let me do the transition songs. I'll I'll do little songs for you. Uh, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> uh, the controversy. Do you do you mean that? Actually, I, I shouldn't say it's a new feature. It's an alpha test or a beta test. Um. Oh no, and and oh wait, I got it. I got it. Your tweets can now be, uh, four four hundred and twenty characters long. No, so over there's an article over at the Verge about this. Um, you can just search for it on Twitter itself and and look up. Twitter audio, whatever they are testing audio tweets, which are available to a limited number of users on iOS and can capture up to 140 seconds of audio per tweet. (sighs) Now I don't want to get into whether or not I think this is a good idea or a bad idea, uh, you know, or whether or not the feature is useful, but let's face it. This is a dumb feature. (laughs) Nobody, people don't go to Twitter to use to listen to audio that's people don't go to twitter to listen to 140 seconds of anything yeah uh, and and the 140 <laughs> seconds of audio is obviously kind of a you know oh yeah little certainly. number to pick on their part as well well it's it's not even the whole site is built on like very very rapid micro interactions with a whole lot of different things so spending even 14 seconds on something just seems like that seems like a stretch for Twitter. Yeah. Well, the controversy side of this comes out because they, they pushed it out. The, the person that I saw, uh, um, was Cardi B. Cardi B apparently was one of the folks who got early access to it because of course they're giving, you know, influencers the, you know, oh, maybe also musicians. Big, yeah, big people basically too. access to this to, yeah. to try it out. But the the controversy comes in with the fact that there were no captions, there was no transcript, there was no text version oh. of the audio. <laughs> so uh-huh. that immediately uh, set <laughs> off a firestorm about releasing this inaccessible feature. So I have a lot of feelings about this and i think given what we've talked about in the past that should not surprise anybody especially just you know was it two episodes ago when we had the folks from webflow on here yeah ej and nick were on from webflow talking about culture of accessibility at a company part of this came from the uh, discovery that twitter uses a voluntary force volunteer force for Mm -hmm. Uh, accessible accessibility uh, work at, at the company. So, like disclaimer, we 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 both wanted to make it clear that these are not unpaid like interns or or right internet randos. These are, I like how you phrased it. Other duties as yeah, assigned. They're employees people. who are who care, which is good. Yeah. I mean, you want them to care, and that is an important part of building a culture of accessibility. With the exception of when I worked at USCIS, every job I've worked at has been, this has been how they approached accessibility. There was not a dedicated 508 or accessibility or AL, A11Y or anything um, person. There was like just people who cared enough to divert some of their time during the day towards these efforts. Yeah. And the, the clarification came from um, Andrew Hayward who's a software engineer there at Twitter and, and one of the co-founders of Twitter Able. Um, he said, just to clarify, okay. given that this seems to have gained some traction, we are volunteers <laughs> in so much as the work we do is notionally on top of our regular roles rather than being full-time. 
we all are otherwise paid employees. Twitter's not outsourcing unpaid labor. So that because that very quickly kind of blew up, I think, in a lot of Twitter sure. circles that how could Twitter not be, you know, how are they relying on volunteers? What's well, <laughs> not that basic? I mean, that's really bad optics if that were true. Sure. But but even on the other hand, like Twitter is a very large site. Yeah. And it's also very popular. And they make a and lot they of make money. a lot of money. Yes. There is zero reason they couldn't pay an EJ and Ruben Nick to work for them like how Webflow does. But I'm betting Twitter's annual revenue is more than Webflow. Probably just a little just bit. Just a guess. <laughs> just a guess. And if Web if Webflow can make accessibility such a priority for their company, why the fuck can't Twitter? So there are some different sort of angles on this. So yes, I think I think while obviously we made that clarification about what it what it meant when they said volunteer um the mm. idea that there isn't sort of that dedicated core group that helps oversee this and and functionally push it into to products is disappointing it rem it reminds mm. me a lot of wordpress and everything that happened with gutenberg yeah this, this yeah. idea that because that, there was even a comment on this one of Andrew's comments was, for what it's worth, we didn't. We're as frustrated and disappointed as the rest of the community. And when I read that comment, yeah. I was like, that sounds exactly like what we heard from the WordPress Accessibility Committee when Gutenberg mm -hmm. was going through. This idea that they were saying yeah. we were raising issues, but things were pushing ahead just the same. Right. And this feels very much the same as that. But this, But yeah. Twitter has the resources to deal with it in a way that WordPress didn't. Not making excuses for WordPress. I, I'm going to disagree only on the point that WordPress does have the resources to deal with this. It would probably be volunteer work, but they are heavily contributed to from the open source community. And I'm sure they have a few people that they could divert, like even just one or two people to divert from doing uh, regular paid work for doing accessibility. And and I I think I just I just simply mean that Twitter has revenue, Twitter has money, Twitter Oh yeah. They, yeah. they have none of the excuses that <laughs> WordPress has, basically. They can absolutely throw money at the problem. Yes. <laughs> so that was surprising to me. And for what it's worth, there was if you go through and read, I'll I'm gonna include some of the tweets in, in the show notes, but there was a lot the head of design and research at Twitter, uh, Dantley Davis came on to this uh, discussion and he said, I appreciate the feedback and direct conversation about accessibility from our passionate community. It's clear we have a lot of work ahead to make Twitter more inclusive for people with disabilities. I will advocate for accessibility to be a part of our design from the beginning of all projects. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the right response. I think, I think that is yeah. a, an appropriate and, and reasonable, you know, way to kind of, stand up to that uh, discussion i i think the proof will be in the pudding obviously <laughs> but now you know it's actually the proof of the pudding is in the eating in you well, know yeah so yeah when the when it releases right <laughs> right so here's where i want to go a little devil's advocate advocate -y, though okay obviously we we don't know if this feature would have released if it if it hadn't been beta tested like in public if it had just been released and was available one day, we don't know what support may have come with it. And we also know 
you know, images, how long did it take us to get the ability to put alt text on images in Twitter? Like that, that right. took in like years too long to get that kind of support. Yeah. So we know that we, they have a history of being slow on some of that stuff. At the right. same time, we don't know what this would have looked like in a final state, but sometimes those features simply take longer to develop. For me, the problem isn't that they are are dragging on this. I, I mean, they've been around, what, 11 years now? 12 years? Oh, God, no, 13, like I think. 13, 13 14 yeah. now. It's over, over a decade. And, and accessibility has been kind of part of a big conversation for let's say the last half of that so let, let's say that like it's been the last six to eight years where they could have realistically been like we should prioritize this i know how long it takes them to do stuff like they have they've had six to eight years to like pay someone to like full-time advocate like even a single person you just pay one person and let them like kind of champion that officially and and advocate for it. And if it takes a while, it takes a while and that sucks. And that's also on Twitter, I suppose. But they're not even doing the most basic thing of just being aware of it. And that's really disappointing. Yeah. There's two, I think, very specific components, right? If if you're gonna support audio tweets, you need to support automated transcription of those tweets. Mm-hmm. Because not sure. everybody will enter them, and you need to support manual, because some people will take the time to do them correctly, and so they need to right. be able to upload those. But I also know that those tools and features, especially the automated piece, you know, we know the trouble we have with automated transcripts of the podcast and, mm -hmm. and the issues that show oh, up yeah. there. Automated transcription is still not a solved problem in this world. And so, right. you know, baking in those features for a beta test may it's simply a feature that could take a lot longer and i guess the mm -hmm. the point i'm trying to make is i think there are constructive and productive ways to draw attention to some of those things and there mm -hmm. are not those ways and i saw a lot of people in some of those twitter threads getting very angry and very up in arms about something that's not a finished feature yet yeah Instead of just saying, hey, we saw this and, you know, we were looking at the feature and we noticed it doesn't have transcripts yet. Is that going to be in before release? You know, there there are ways to draw attention to that that aren't like, yeah. why are you building such terrible tools that are excluding the community? <laughs> like, that's a very antagonistic and unproductive, I think, way of getting the kind of change you want to get. I I think that, like, I'm okay with them testing something out with a small percentage of users just to see if it even works and in it not being like a fully baked feature with accessibility and everything. I realized that that, because like, I guess, I guess the reason that it seems fine to me is because if most of us can't use it at all, then it's like, we're not being excluded from it because of our ability. And it's, you know, at some point you do have to have the ability to test things at scale. So I like I'm not upset about that part. I I'm more upset about the bigger issue of just that other duties as assigned for something that's really really important, especially yeah. on the web. And and I yeah I like I said, I'm I'm I was playing devil's advocate a little bit in yeah. my phrasing of that. So 
it's it, what is the phrase you know it's it's easier to to find bears with honey than it is to eat a mouthful of bees i don't what <laughs> what so the thing about you know it's when you're when you're nice about things it's easier to get your way than when you're you know mean and and nasty about it and then people, oh it's easier to catch flies with with vinegar than it is with I honey i don't know one of those things but that's that's kind of where i'm thinking about stuff like that because when when you come at somebody that you immediately make them defensive and i think in development yeah. in particular people can get very defensive about the things they've built the the impression that i get of twitter is that they are this like insulated building where they don't actually talk or review or survey any of their actual users and what the users are actually requesting and instead they're just like what are some cool things that we could offer? And they'll ask people in their immediate circles and maybe survey the people in their tech communities, but they don't actually ask anyone else in the world <laughs> because they, they, they have, here's a really good case in point. Just calling back to something I mentioned earlier. If you set your geolocation to Germany, Twitter will not show you any content that's anti-Semitic or has, Nazi emblems or Nazi references or anything, because in Germany it's illegal to do that. And so to comply with German law, Twitter will do that. But people have been complaining for years now about all of the Nazi imagery and other things, and Twitter doesn't do that. But I mean, like, they have the capability to do that. And they don't, but instead they're like, oh, guess what? Your avatar is circles now. Oh, guess what? You can do 280 character tweets now. They they keep releasing these features that like I don't think anyone's actually asking for, and they're ignoring the ones that are like actually making the platform shitty. So yes, I do have a bit of extra grind with Twitter. I think uh you know, one other way to look at this is I certainly don't want to be the person standing up and and saying, hey, let me make some excuses for Twitter at this point on this, because mm -hmm. I don't, and I don't agree with them, and I I absolutely think there's a lot of change that needs to happen on, on that front. The The one reason why I think I'm a little passionate about this idea of how we voice that displeasure is if we make it okay to crap all over Twitter, then we make it okay to crap all over diaper base. No pun intended. <laughs> Uh, that's that's fair. Although I would I would counter that by saying that diaper base is a hundred percent volunteer based. Sure, sure. And we don't we don't have make any profits or revenue at but all. That's you know from a relevancy standpoint though, it's just a matter of imagine somebody used diaper base and then tweeted mm -hmm. at you and said, "I don't understand how how you could even get through QA releasing this particular mm -hmm. feature the way you did. It's completely wrong. It's you you forgot about this this and this like and just really like didn't try to constructively help you fix the problem they just said you sure. screwed this up you did this wrong whether you're paid whether you're volunteer or not yeah no we we've had uh we actually did have feedback kind of like that at the conference last year regarding like a couple of the features that just like weren't working right and i guess it was a little problematic for some of the users but um, I hear what you're saying, like not being an asshole yeah, you, about it. You have to, because yeah. that's the thing. If we're okay with doing it at Twitter, we're going to be okay with doing it at anybody. And in a lot of places, 
those web devs are one-man armies who are already overworked and underpaid or whatever, and they're mm -hmm. doing the best they can, and they would love to help you with your problem, but if you're the jerk in the room, your priority <laughs> now drops way below everybody else, and you're not helping solve the problem. And that's that's the only, that's the real lesson I think that I'm I, I hope I'm sending. I do agree with you that maybe we shouldn't be assholes to other developers who are just trying to do their best. Maybe direct that ire towards the executives who are making the decisions. Um, I think that's always fine. At the same time, I, I like. I think it's okay to be a little indignant, especially in situations like this. Twitter has the resources. They have had plenty of time. They're not stupid. Well, and, and they, they do have a history on. of being yeah. less than, you know, yeah. adaptive to, to some of those needs. Like I say, I, I do totally yeah. get that. What it really means is you have to look at the way you, not just building software, websites, whatever. You, you have to start with accessibility, not finish with it. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Maybe, you know. I don't think that it probably came up early on in that discussion, but maybe it did. And maybe the fact of the matter is it's just taking them a long time to get the technology sorted out to get auto-captioning mm -hmm. and, and transcription done. That could be a thing. I don't think it is, but it, it could be the issue. But the reality mm -hmm. is where, wherever you work, whatever you're building, the only way to make accessibility a priority is to make accessibility a priority. And that means, like you were saying... You need people whose role and job it is to advocate constantly and to build yeah. that. You don't need them indefinitely and forever, but you do need them there yeah. to start to get developers thinking about it, to get designers thinking about it, so that when you're having those brainstorming sessions and those feature development sessions and all of that, and somebody says, I have an idea, how about audio tweets? The very next question mm -hmm. should be, that's a neat idea. How could we go about making that so that it would also offer auto transcription? Like that should be the next question. And that yes. only comes with education and culture in an organization. I completely agree with that. And and it reminds me of something that uh Ruben and EJ were talking about, where they were saying that it's even even with both of them who are people who directly benefit from accessibility measures, they're even saying, like, look, we're not like capital E experts. We have one particular angle of experience, but there, there needs to be a general practice of approaching the problem in a way that produces more accessibility. Yeah. It's important to, that, that people from your group are represented in rooms where decisions are made, just because there's going to be factors that other people don't know about. And this is why, at the end of the day, we bring this up so constantly. Because, again, I said at the start, I know it seems like we harp on accessibility quite a bit, especially lately. But we have to. We have to make accessibility part of this conversation as frequently and, and constantly as we can. Because that is how we start a culture of accessibility, is we have to talk about it. And we have mm -hmm. to make sure it's not a bolt-on. It's part of just the way we work. Maybe you work somewhere where this message needs heard, so share the episode with people and say, listen to these guys. <laughs> They're trying to tell you that what I've been saying forever, sometimes hearing it from other people can be a lot more powerful. I hate that, but it is true. So do we need a, a little sound clip there? Accessibility from the start matters. <laughs> Agreed.
The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Well, thanks for listening to our potpourri. Looks like you had a potpourri drink tonight. I had a potpourri drink. How was your potpourri drink? You had a potpourri brain. <laughs> your brain is very... I, so we've been... My, my new job does a lot of um, pairing. Like every day is pairing for the entire day. And it's amazing and awesome and I love it. Man, like about three, four o'clock... I can just feel my brain stamina just really waning. It'll get easier over time, I'm sure. But I, it's a, especially after being unemployed for a couple months, my, my brain was hurting. <laughs> I know how to computer, I swear. Folks, if you'd love to follow us, we would love to follow you. Catch us on Twitter or Facebook, slash Drunken UX. You can catch us on Instagram at slash Drunken UX Podcast. If you want to catch us, chat with us anytime, go to drunkenux.com slash Discord. We love chatting with you if you need ideas, if you need a sounding board, if you need help with something. We are here. Think of us just as your water cooler buddies. Um, we are always cool with just having a little chat or talking about whatever it is that you may be frustrated with in your websites. And, you know, we're easy to find. We're At least I'm easy to find. I'm on Twitter. Don't know so much about I'm, about this guy over here. but I, I'm, on, I, I'm on the Nightmare Rectangle. Well. I, I think uh, I, 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 have, I have... Drug you along begrudgingly. <laughs> <laughs> I I have on my phone. I have all the social media apps. The the very few that I use are all in a group, and the group is labeled Hellscapes. I'm also on Counter Social. If anybody actually is uh, over there too, I'm uh, just same thing. I'm feening on Counter Social. Uh, so you. I don't use I don't use Kosai or Koso, but I um I do like it, and I, I like what the jester is doing with that. I think it's a good site. I just. I have. I only want to be part of these communities just so yeah, much. I know I get because it. Humans are pretty awful. <laughs> Folks, thanks for tuning in. We hope you learned a little bit this week. Um, obviously, a few little uh, different topics. Uh, if you like hearing these kind of episodes, let us know about it. We'll do them more often. We'll, we'll work them into the rotation a little more frequently. Stay tuned. We do have some other guests that will be coming up to talk about. And actually, now I'm totally off my mark in terms of the order of things, but I think uh, the next guest will be talking <laughs> about simplifying tool chains and uh, how to approach build Ooh. processes in a way that doesn't make your head bleed using, you know, with your, maybe getting away from things like Webpack, for instance. Uh, I like not having my head bleed. I like bleed. not having my head bleed a little bit too um, because, you know, the, the best way to do that, there is, there, is a, there is a lot of things, you know, from whether that's simplifying tool chains or, you know, approaching stuff like accessibility from the start so that it's not coming at you at the end. 
Um, because at the end of the day, the best way to keep yourself sane is just to keep your personas close and your users closer. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs>